Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams, and this is episode 194. Currently, Allie and I are still here in D.C. We're having a great time. Allie, say hi. Hi. So instead of the studio, we're in our little apartment, but we're having a great time. And of course, you can hear Sadie in the background. Um, but unintentionally, I have scheduled two alcohol-based episodes back-to-back, which is super fun. And the one for this week is with an awesome cidery in California. It is with Brendan and Chris Barnard from Posterity Cider Works. So we're going to chat with them about their cidery, why they started it, and how they focus on quality instead of quantity. And we actually are doing a farm traveler first. We're actually doing a tasting in the interview, which was super fun. I got two types of cider from them, tried them both. With Brendan, we're going to talk about the cider making process. And then with Chris, we're going to talk about the whole marketing side of it. You know, how they develop stories, how they do tours, and even their cider club, which is super fun. And Brendan talked about something which was very interesting. They're not technically organic. They're not technically conventional. Instead, he tries to go for fruits that are low intervention. So basically, he works with a lot of orchards that the fruit have been growing for hundreds of years on these family orchards, and they're really just kind of growing in nature. And he'll talk more about kind of the role that fruits play in cider making and how, you know, fruit that has been around a fruit tree that has been around for that long develops such a such a unique taste for those different ciders so this was a super fun interview head over to our youtube channel of course to go watch clips some of the clips that we have um, from today's interview include some clips from posterity cider works and they have some awesome behind the scenes footage of like making the ciders what their tasting room looks like and all that good stuff so go check that out and of course check them out at the links below Try some of their cider. I can attest it is delicious, as you will hear in our interview. So without further ado, please welcome Brendan and Chris to the podcast. I honestly think after like three years of doing podcasting, I think you might be the first like cider maker that we've had on the show. So I think this will be really cool. We're going to do a tasting in a little bit. So no pressure. I think this will be cool learning about the whole cider making process. Um, just real quick, it's you and your wife, Chris. Give us a little breakdown of like kind of the history of you guys. Like, how did you start Posterity Cider Works? Uh, yeah, so we've been open as a business mm-hmm. to the public for basically exactly a year now. We mm-hmm. opened the doors to the public last April, um, and then uh, that prior fall was our first official commercial production year. But I've been making cider for probably, I think. I think going on seven or eight years now. Um, and as just as a hobby, it started literally in the garage. 
Um, we used to live in Half Moon Bay, California, um, and uh, the house oh, where cool. we lived had uh, eight apple trees and three pear trees, and there's <laughs> really only so much you can do with that much produce. Um, and so cider making became like the natural uh, thing to do with all that fruit. It was like a hundred and I don't know, probably like 150 pounds of apples uh, a season that we would get, and some pears too. Um, and like, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty clear, like you got to find something to put there. Um, and so we put like the really cute, super quaint, uh, like powder coated red basket press and grinder, like the hand grinder on our Christmas list and got it. And then the next year we started making <laughs> cider and we realized that like that equipment sucks. Uh, it's, it's really, really cute, but oh, it's okay. also super labor intensive. It doesn't give you the best results. And then just what I really started to dig into was how to make better cider. A lot of the stuff I made at the beginning was not very good. It wasn't stuff that I was happy with. It wasn't producing the flavors that I wanted. It wasn't producing flavors that were honest to the fruit. Um, some of them weren't even drinkable. Um, and so I just started getting deeper and deeper in the uh, the chemistry of what was happening um, and started jettisoning more and more of the conventional wisdom about how to make cider. Uh, because especially here in the U.S., um, our cider making mm. tradition is technically fairly old. Uh, cider was original American homestead beverage because it was so easy to make. The trees will grow basically anywhere. You don't need a lot of the specialized equipment. Like if you're making beer, you need tons of firewood so you can boil all your wort. You need to be growing multiple crops. Um, you need to be able to malt the grain. All of this stuff makes it a little bit more expensive. You know, distilled spirits, you need a still, even more expensive and specialized. Um, but basically anybody could take <laughs> apples, smash them, get the juice, put it in an old barrel, and like you've got something there. Um, but a lot of that tradition was really severed. Um, the like late 1800s through prohibition was really the decline of the uh, cider making industry. So a lot of the a lot of the knowledge uh, was lost. A lot of the older traditions fell away. And so a lot of what is currently being made um, is generally what people are familiar with. Uh, okay. is a super, 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 super commercialized product. Uh, it's, it's bulk production. Um, typically, it does not start with apples for most producers. It starts with a juice concentrate that's shelf stable for like 15 <laughs> years because it's so concentrated and pasteurized that it literally couldn't spoil um, but it's a really long way away from the fruit. And so most of the production choices that get made um, are heavily informed by that style of production, um, which just wasn't what I wanted to be making. It wasn't as interesting to me. Um, and so I just started going deeper and deeper into like the first principles of like some of the yeast chemistry, uh, some of the flavor compounds that I was looking for um, that are in the fruit, but were being lost through the fermentation style. Um, and about three years in, I finally made some stuff that was good enough, uh, that Chris was like, oh, I would drink this. This is actually, you're not an insane person. Uh, like let's, let's talk about where we go from here. And I'm sure that's difficult. You're, you're, you're trying to make a really good batch, but like, how do you go about like kind of experimenting without wasting a whole lot? Like, do you just make like small, small batches and just kind of go from there? Yeah. I mean, just, uh, divvy up the production in really small lots, um, like down to literally like half gallon mason jars mm. uh, of an experiment. Cause at that point it really was, it was just backyard production. I think the most I did in a given year with the stuff that we grew, uh, was probably 20 gallons. 
Okay. Um, which is respectable. Um, but then you can divvy that up into, you know, half gallon, one gallon, three gallon, five gallon lots. And you've got, you know, like 15 chances to try something weird. Um, and so a lot of it was honestly wasted, like, you know, and that's just wasted effort on my part. Like, you know, if it wound up being truly horrible, I just dump it out back into the yard and it, you know, waters the plants. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah there you go. But, um, really none of that was lost because a lot of it was just education for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's okay. not really, there's not really a cider making curriculum. Um, you know, there's viticulture classes that you can take. There's beer brewing courses at a lot of universities now, and there really isn't a cider making education plan. So a lot of it is essentially cobbled together. Uh, many, many of the cider makers, especially in the style that I'm doing, we're all self-taught. Um, and like, it's a lot of experimentation. There's like, a handful of books that are a nice starting resource. And then we all just start diving in and creating our own style. Is, is that community kind of like really collaborative? Um, I honestly, it's, uh, it can be, it's also so small. Uh, and we're Mm -hmm. also usually because it's, um, because it's farm based, uh, for a lot of it, like we're all pretty far apart. Um, so there's, there's some forums online where we can chat with each other. Um, like we chat on Instagram from time to time. Uh, but we're also all like, there's an annual convention, um, called CiderCon here in the U S there's a few of them. Um, and so like, depending on what part of the country it is, um, and how big the operation is, it's easier or harder for some folks to go. But like, you know, for us and for a lot of the folks I know, um, it's, uh, (laughs) It's really like a one to five person operation. Um, oh, okay. It becomes a little bit challenging at that point, to, like especially depending on the time of the year. If it's a harvest timed uh, event, then like it's not happening because we're 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 busy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I can imagine. So that's wild. And I'm thinking about it, like when we're talking about like ciders, like, let's think about like apple ciders, maybe. Um, like I'm imagining all the varieties of apples we have, like obviously the apples are going to have like a really big impact on the flavor. But I mean, if you get, if you have the same recipe, but the apples are different, like, is it going to be like totally, a totally different taste? Uh, in the style that I do? Yes. Um, again, a lot of the stuff that's, uh, produced in bulk, uh, the goal is low variability. Um, okay. and so a lot of the choices are, are downstream of that. They want a consistent product. Um, and in many cases, the way to guarantee that is with a ton of interventions that force mm. it to become exactly what you want. Like they know what those batches are going to taste like before they ever see the fruit or really honestly, most of them before they like connect the hoses to the tanker truck that's delivering the, the juice or they, before they decant the, uh, the juice concentrate, like they have the recipe in mind, they're going to make it taste exactly the same way. Um, and what we do is really small batch, super granular um and very 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 fruit led um and so last year i think i made like 25 different ciders uh this year i think we're closing in at like 40 um and so it's all really small batch production um and for me that's exciting because it means we really start to get into like well this is say arkansas black grown on limestone soil and this is arkansas black grown on granitic soil and they taste different and we can do two five gallon batches and sell them potentially side by side as like a combined release. And you can really start to 
play with people's conception of what the fruit can do and what it can become in different climates. Um, and some of that is also really fun about where we live. Uh, so we're up in the Sierra foothills and we have incredibly hot summers, uh, like 110, 115 uh, Ooh, okay. times uh, during the summer is not at all unusual. Last year we hit like 118 for a day or two. Um, and obviously it's California, so we are dry that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the orchards that we harvest right now are old. They're uh, really, really well-established trees that were then abandoned. Uh, so it's like a commercial orchard from anywhere through about the 1870s through maybe the 1940s or 50s is a lot of what we pick. Um, and at some point, the commercial market for that fruit disappeared or like somebody in the family passed away and they were the person who was actually responsible for knowing how to maintain the property. Okay. And so that like chain of stewardship was kind of severed. Um, and now it's a feral orchard. It's like, it's still in the family's hands. They don't know what to do with it. And they basically ignore it. The family does something else for income. Mm-hmm. Like they cattle, they're contractors, they well, like whatever it is, like they have done something else. They still have this pocket of land that's producing the fruit. Um, and that really starts to produce amazing fruit because you take some of these varietals and then they're dry farmed all summer in a hot summer environment. There's no nitrogen amendment to the soil. There's no irrigation. Nobody's spraying them. Uh, they experience like the pure climate of our place. Um, and so we start to see just crazy stuff where like a lot of it is wild fruit, obviously, because you take an old orchard like that and it's been abandoned for 80 years. Like mm-hmm. there's crossbreeding. You've got all sorts of weird, wild stuff growing. But even the original cultivated fruit starts to go way, way, way off book in terms of like comparing that variety to the same variety at the grocery store or the farmer's market. Like we are way out there in terms of the flavors. Um, and the sugar level often is just miles higher. Like um, I've seen as much as probably double uh, the standard sugar levels. So we go from an apple that would produce maybe in the grocery store or the farmer's market under conventional summer irrigation and cultivation practices, you'd get like a potential alcohol around like four to six percent and then we find it growing up in the foothills the family still has the records they can prove what was planted it matches some of those characteristics and like yeah that's this apple um and then we find it and it's like nine ten percent alcohol potential oh my gosh (laughs) um and it's not just about the abv there what that is really a simple a symbol of is like you've concentrated everything about that fruit it's not just the sugar that's become concentrated all of the aromatics are more intense mm. the acid tannins everything is richer and bigger um and so we can start to do really weird stuff um and we'd lose that if we were trying to make more of the standard style of production where it was like i make one 10,000 gallon batch a year. And then we divvy it up and pump in fruit puree uh, to make it taste like mango or guava or like whatever else Um, that would, all that context would vanish um, by trying to make a batch that sized, um, which is just like such a loss when you start to figure out like how to really work with that fruit. Um, And that's just what I love to be able to do. Yeah. The perks of being small batch, like you have that, you have, you, you can really adjust a lot better to the apples that you have. And like, instead of like having to meet a really huge demand, like let's say you're using an apple from one of those farms that has just drastically changed and you want to make a new cider. Like what's your process like of creating a brand new batch of with a, with an apple that you haven't really used in a while? Yeah, that can be, um, a lot of it is just intuition. Um, like Mm -hmm. I said, at this point I've been doing it for seven or eight years. Um, 
And a, a lot of the early experimentation is just like, what happens if I blank? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's not even necessarily expecting a good result. It's just like, what happens? What happens? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it middling? Like, it doesn't matter as long as I'm learning about that fruit or that yeast or whatever is happening, temperature range. Um, and so typically, the first time we find one of these orchards, um, it can be a little bit of a stressful process. Um, okay. <laughs> some of them are, I mean, like, we're talking like way, way out there. There's places that are like 45 minutes outside the nearest town. And that town is 500 people. Um, like some of these properties are way out. They've been in the same family's hands literally since like 1860, the trees go back (laughs) however long. Um, and a lot of the time it's like, you know, it takes me 45 minutes of macheteing out to get to the trees. (laughs) Um, and so like for some of those properties that first harvest year, we're not even looking for like, bulk like i'm not even trying to get every piece of fruit because it's it's really just what what does this orchard represent what kind of fruit is here what can we do with it next year or the year after or the year after once we get a bobcat in and rip out the blackberries Mm -hmm. and like once it becomes easier to harvest what am i doing with this um and so Typically, I'll I'll split the batch at least once or twice. Um, the bulk of it is probably going to go with the yeast that my intuition says is going to work well with those fruit properties based on other orchards that we've done. Like I'm tasting all of the fruit and figuring out like what's here. Where do I think this is going to go? Where do I think this is going to go with this yeast? And then we'll split a little bit of it off and try maybe one or two other cultivated yeasts. And then we'll leave a batch also to go wild and just see mm-hmm. what yeast lives in that orchard. Um, because what we find, uh, is a lot of variability in terms of the wild yeast quality. Um, a lot of these properties, like I said, they're very isolated. These are little tiny Sierra meadows. Um, and there's a lot of biodiversity when it comes to the yeast populations. And some of them are amazing and some of them are trash. They taste awful. And I'm really glad that it was like a three gallon experimental wild yeast batch and not the like 40 or 50 gallons that we got out of the rest of the orchard. (laughs) Um, So it's like, okay, well that's not what we're going to work with. And then other times I'm disappointed the other way where it's like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Hmm. Next year we're going to let the wild yeast do 50% of the fermentation or the whole thing, or, you know, it really depends. Um, So yeah, the first year of harvest from a new orchard is really, really gut based. um, And just like, we're going to see what happens. Uh, Let's just go with the flow. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to give it like maybe three or four pathways and just see where they all end up. And then from there, the next year, the year after uh, we start to dive into how do we really maximize what's coming out of this orchard? Do we do two different batches, one early, one late season? Like, Mm. because again, a lot of these properties, it's like 90 minutes, two, three hours away in some cases up in the the hills, I'm only getting out there once for a harvest. And so it might not be perfectly targeted to take the best advantage of every individual variety that's there. Um, it's like, okay, we're going to come up here this time of year. We're going to get everything that's definitely ripe, maybe a little bit that's probably going to ripen in storage. And then like, oh, those trees. Yeah, that was probably better a month ago. Um, now we know. Yeah, get her <laughs> earlier next year. Right, right. Um, so there's a there's a great orchard that's an example of that. We didn't find out about it until oh, I think like late November. Um, and when we got out there, basically all the fruit had fallen. Most of what was still on the trees was 
probably a month to two months past peak. Um, mm. And so it's like, okay, when that orchard crops next year or the year after, that's a September fruit. Um, and so again, like some of it just does, it is all experimental. There is some waste, there is some loss, um, but that's really how we find the best relationship with the property um, is by accepting that at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, all about the experimentation. And before I forget, like going back to the yeast thing, I mean, that's really what helps the sugars ferment. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So the okay. yeast, when it's doing its job, the yeast is eating sugar, it's producing alcohol, uh, and then it's producing carbon dioxide. And the CO2 bubbles off, the alcohol stays behind, and then the yeast also has some flavor contributions to make. Um, and different yeasts add different flavors. You can age on the, the yeast after it goes dormant and settles down to the bottom of the barrel or the tank. Um, there's lots of different ways to get flavors out of the yeast as well. Um, so it's not just the fruit. And then it also, you know, we're running the fermentations in in plastic, in stainless steel, in oak, and all of that has different uh, contributions as well. Gotcha. Okay. Um, have you done anything with like, um, like charred barrels and stuff like that? Because I know like when it comes to whiskey and even wine, like there's a huge difference in flavors versus like virgin barrels and then charred oak barrels. And that's really fascinating to learn about. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, so like the, the bottle right there, the many plums, mm -hmm. uh, so that one is bourbon barrel aged, uh, okay. so that one, uh, was aged in a seven-year-old bourbon barrel, um, that had literally been emptied the day before. Um, so I drove up the hill to our local distiller, grabbed a barrel from him that had just been emptied. It was still soaked with some of that bourbon. Um, and then immediately put the, the plum in there, um, to age for just shy of six months. So that one, um, basically we did two months of carbonic maceration in steel barrels. Um, so what that means is that we let the fruit ferment whole. We didn't crush it, okay. um, let it ferment whole. Um, and so you get the yeast at a much slower fermentation rate, and then the fruit is also whole. And so it's, uh, enzymatically ripening, uh, as well. So like, if you've ever had a plum and like, it's a little hard when you get it at the store, it's a little bit softer, it's a little bit softer, there's more and more sugar. And then it like goes too far. And you've got like this puddle of vinegar on your countertop. <laughs> um, that's what happens when a lot of the stone fruit in particular, uh, ripens all the way in oxygen. Um, but when you do that under carbon dioxide in a sealed barrel, uh, the spoilage bacteria can't do its job. You can't make vinegar. Um, and so you wind up getting a lot more sugar out of the fruit. Um, so the initial sugar that was available to us in those plums was for the most part um, around four to 5% potential alcohol. Um, and that bottle is now at 8.1 ABV. Um, and so we liberated that extra few percentage points by letting it ripen further inside those barrels. Um, and then after two months of, of that enzymatic ripening and fermentation, uh, we opened it up, scooped out all the glop, uh, which is <laughs> really the best description of it. As yeah, well. no, I believe you. <laughs> and so uh, we put it into our presses, pressed it out, and then the juice went into that bourbon barrel to age. But yeah, we use, um, again, when I get the, the first time I use an orchard, um, I usually like to do it in stainless steel um, because it's 100% neutral. I want to mm. just taste the fruit and just the yeast and really be able to dial in like what is happening here? Um, what direction should this go next year? Um, and then from there we age on, uh, we use like a lot of medium toast American oak. We use that heavy char bourbon barrel. Um, 
We've got some interesting stuff that's going right now that's in uh, two-year-old corn whiskey barrels. Um, okay, so cool. Much lower rye percentage, really high corn percentage, um, and then a much younger barrel as well with a less heavy char. And so it's got a totally different flavor contribution than the bourbon barrel. Um, and we'll probably play with more uh, going forward. I've done some like hickory wood age. We've done some cherry wood, um, all kinds of stuff. You can really play with some of those flavors. I bet you can. Have you picked up any barrels where you're like, you know what? I'm going to let this sit for two extra years. Have you done any, any of that? Do you have any like in the side of your barn or something? Uh, not yet. Um, I'd love to be able to do some more extended aging, um, either in the bottle or uh, in the barrel or the tank, uh, because that obviously all of that does cool stuff. But a lot of what we've got, um, it typically we release our ciders. Uh, between about four months and 18 months. Um, okay. That's about our window right now. Um, and obviously, you know, like I said, we've been open officially for a year. Um, and so the longer we're open, the deeper the bench can become of, of stuff that's been aging for longer. Um, gotcha. I mean, and you could technically like just age it indefinitely, right? Uh, it depends. I mean, you, <laughs> you can obviously uh, not open it for a long time. Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to continue to gain depth. Mm, um, okay. Depending on the cider, uh, you really need the right starting conditions for that extended aging um, in the bottle or in the barrel. Um, it needs certain uh, starting point uh, in order to actually gain depth. Um, and some stuff is just, it's not going to do that. Um, it doesn't have the right characteristics. It might be shelf stable for that long, but it's not going to get more interesting. It's going to taste the same or potentially worse if you wait a year or two years or four years. And then other stuff is like, absolutely, we're going to let this rest as long as possible and just see where it goes. Because I have really high confidence that based on the starting conditions, it's going to get much more interesting. Just like mm. a fine wine. Um, like, you know, there's... 10, 20, there's very well-aged wines and whiskeys, um, but it really depends. Like, what is that starting point? Um, and is it actually worth it to take that time? Um, and for for some stuff it is, and for some stuff it isn't. Yeah, it seems like it's all very pass-fail. Like, that, that's interesting. Like, the starting notes, you can tell. And I imagine after you've been doing it for so long, you can really pick up, like, oh, this needs six months, and it'll be perfect. Or, like, this needs a year or something. So it, it seems like there's a lot of, like, education like once you start doing it all right and so like for everything we make i set aside usually a minimum of about a half case um i like to set aside a full case of what everything i make if i had the space <laughs> um and that's really for that just like am i wrong was this was this uh too early a release uh like would it have been way better if we'd waited um or like does this if we make it again does this absolutely have to get sold before it reaches this age like at which point it starts to decline mm -hmm. and so that's where we just like i'll open a bottle every six months every year every two years <laughs> so I've, got, I've got a few ciders now that are like i don't know i think the oldest bottle i've got right now is five years old six years old um and it starts to be really tricky because that is it's my curriculum um, and I have to open it in order to find out. But when we start to get down to like, okay, I've got two bottles of this. I don't necessarily want to open it. Even if I, even if I need to know like, okay, so this is what it tastes like after four years, we got to open a bottle. Um, uh, I'm like, but then I only have one bottle left. When do I open it? <laughs> 
That's true. So why exactly? I mean, obviously, I, I'm assuming just the air comes in and that natural CO2 goes out. Like, why can't you just open it up, take out a little bit and put it back and let it age for a couple more months? Uh, the the chemistry of it starts to change. Like you lose a lot of the stuff that we do is sparkling. Um, so we do either patnat, patillant naturel, uh, or uh, method ancestral um, is typically how we do a lot of our sparkling stuff. Um, and so we bottle on the lees. Um, and so they do gain a lot of character from that time in the bottle. And then once you open it, you lose that carbon dioxide. Mm. Um, it starts to come out of solution. You introduce oxygen, um, which especially for the style of production that we do, we don't use any sulfites, um, which is super, super common in the wine industry and the cider making industry. Sulfite mm. is a chemical pasteurizer. It's going to kill off all the wild microbes, including wild yeast, and it's going to minimize your spoilage risk, um, which is why the larger businesses use it. Um, most of them, again, like I said, they're dealing with massive lots of juice. It's like a 5,000 gallon tanker truck. Um, and you have no idea what kind of quality uh, <laughs> of fruit went into that. You can't take anything on faith at that point. You have to sterilize it. Um, we're really small. I have total control from the orchard to the bottle. Um, and so I can pretty much guarantee that nothing in there is going to spoil. Um, and so I don't use any sulfites, uh, primarily uh, from an aesthetic perspective. Um, I can just taste it whenever I use it. And so I step down the dosage and step down the dosage um until i basically i'm not putting it in at all anymore um and i'm still making cider that doesn't spoil so that's <laughs> that's a benefit of being small scale as well um but the other caveat is that uh a sulfite is a really good oxygen scavenger so mm, most okay. companies and cideries introduce sulfite at the time of bottling as well so it's they introduce it at the beginning after pressing to sterilize the juice they dose all of the wine with it in the barrel while it ages for a couple of years to keep it sterile there um, and then they introduce it again at bottling to make sure that it doesn't go off in the bottle um, and so those are um they're more stable uh but they're also way less alive um and so uh, again just like the way we do it i lean into that variability um, and for me, it allows me to produce some really incredible flavors by accepting that maybe I'll never be able to make it again. That is just like a one-time perfect combination of yeast strains that were living in that orchard at the time and one year of production of fruit. Like that's a flash in the pan. It's really amazing. It's super, super special because of that. Uh, and we just say goodbye to it and that's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we got to experience it, but I bet the rush of it is that you can try to figure it out or to possibly make it again or make one better, which I'm sure is yeah. like just never ending. Yeah. It's super, super fun. Um, at least for me, um, <laughs> it would be super stressful for other types of people. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, yeah. And I was wondering why, you know, sulfates were added because I've heard a lot, like my wife loves wine and she has heard that, you know, if you drink a lot of wine that has a lot of sulfides in it, you have like a headache the next day kind of, or you might be hung over if you drink a lot of wine, but if it's sulfide free, you don't have that effect on you. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of compounds uh, that are to blame for uh, <laughs> hangovers. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, the wine industry really likes to say that sulfites aren't responsible. Um, but basically everyone has some degree of sulfate reaction. Some people actually have a medical sensitivity to sulfite. Oh, okay. Um, and then depending on what kind of producer made that wine, the sulfite level varies. 
Um, so the typical minimum in a bottle of standard wine, you're going to see between like 60 and 90 parts per million. Uh, the FDA actually limits producers to 350 parts per million um, because at that point, the FDA steps in and says, okay, this is officially bad for everyone. <laughs> um, and uh, varying people have varying reactions to it, but it typically causes inflammation. Um, it can cause headaches. It can cause skin flushing. Um, mm. And basically everyone has had the experience of like, you're like one glass into an entire bottle of wine and you start to feel that like prickly flushed, like your nose maybe gets plugged up. Um, you start to get a headache and you're like, I can't be drunk. Like I'm one, I'm one glass into this bottle. Um, and that's typically a reaction to sulfites, high amine levels, um, and a lot of sugar, um, which is classically associated with the bulk producers, people who are making, you know, 10 or 20 million gallons a year. Um, a lot of it winds up getting white labeled and then goes out to various smaller houses that put it in their own barrels for a year and then slap a label on it and call it different things. But really, it was made at the same giant facility. It started to go off at the giant facility and they just dosed the shit out of it with <laughs> all kinds of stuff to make sure that it didn't. Um, and so they're flirting with some of those levels of like, OK, it's not good for anyone. We probably can't sell it. And they're like creeping towards that threshold in order to save it. Yeah, getting very close to it. The, the chemistry of winemaking is wild. Uh, and again, my wife and I, so it was her 30th birthday last year, and she'd always wanted to go to Napa. And so we went to Napa for her 30th, and we toured a bunch of wineries, learned about all the chemistry, the science that goes into it. It was really neat. It was really eye-opening. I mean, it, there's a lot more that goes into viticulture and cider making than you really might think. Yeah. Um, and so the, the style of production that we do is generally known as low intervention. Um, okay. Sometimes it's called natural winemaking. Um, and it basically means that we try really, really, really hard not to add anything to what you're drinking. Um, so for me, that means no sulfites, no yeast nutrients, no clarifiers, no preservatives. We're never adding any dyes. Um, and then I never back sweeten. Um, mm -hmm. And all of that is super common above a certain threshold of production size. Um, and so like a lot of wines have like a grape concentrate that's added to them called mega purple. It's to make them look darker, which mm. people associate with being better. Um, and so it's just like, there's this laundry list of interventions that become just part and parcel of making wine at that level. Um, and from my perspective, it really starts to get in the way of what's the fruit actually doing. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's a force function of that scale. Like if you're making 40 million gallons of wine a year and it's got to taste the same for the last 40 years, like people expect one flavor from that particular batch. Like I get why they do it. It's just not what I want to be making. Um, and I think it elides a lot of the nuance of that kind of production. Like I said, like some of these orchards that we get, it's super special fruit. It's literally only one part of the world. One orchard in the entire world is producing fruit that tastes that way. Um, and so with that low intervention style of production, we can actually reflect that in the bottle. Um, and that is so far been really popular with our customers. I mean, it sounds like it, like I keep hearing this term online. It's like the riches are in the niches. Like you guys have a very niche product. <laughs> so good, yeah. It's perfect. I mean, you find your audience, you're like, they find you, they're like, you know what? I really love this small batch, um, cider. It's so much better. And it tastes like the, the experience is much more enjoyable than big box stores. And like, like you were saying, whenever you get to that scale, it's all about the consistency rather than the experience. And you guys are on the experience right. level, it seems like. 
Yeah. Yeah. So like, again, I keep saying it, but like <laughs> lean into the variability, like oh, yeah. it's more interesting. We can, we can share such interesting things with the people who drink our ciders this way. Um, and that's frequently what people say when they come to the tasting room is like, I have never had cider that tastes like this. And that's, that's music to my ears. That's what I want to be making. I don't want to be making something that like tastes like every single other yeah. cider you've had because it was made at the same facility and it's just a different label that was put on the same bulk juice. Like, I don't want to make that. That's boring. It's like, you want to be unique. You want your products to be unique. And, and well, speaking right. of that, I think let's, we can do our <laughs> tasting. So this is the, the bourbon barrel aged plum cider. It's the mini plums. And so we're going to, I'm going to post this everywhere, everywhere. I think this will be cool. So <laughs> as I'm opening, I'm going to try to open it and, and not do a mess. Give us your, your spiel on this that you would give at like a normal tasting. Yeah. Uh, so this uh, started life as uh, about a thousand pounds of wild plums, uh, all of which we harvested within five miles of our production facility in Hill, okay. California. So this is super, super local. Um, there's probably like 50 different varieties of plum in there. Um, some of them look like olives. They're so small and like they're almost all stone. There's no flesh. It's all stone and skin. Um, okay. Others are like crossed with cherries. They're crossed with apricots. They're back crossed. It's like this insane smorgasbord of wild plums, which is where we got the name from. Um, so we gave it two months of carbonic maceration. Uh, so we harvested all the plums. We put them in steel tanks, closed them up, and let them sit whole fruit and enzymatically ripen and slowly ferment. Then we opened it up pressed out all the juice and stuck it in a bourbon barrel for about five and a half months. And so this one to me, like this is pure cocktail. Like we put it in a tumbler um, and uh, like this one will actually stand up to an ice cube. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. Like it's, it's super fun. It's like a, a wild plum and cherry old fashioned. Um, you'll get this clear boozy bourbony note all throughout um, and then the stone fruit comes in really strongly. Some people also compare this to like a sour beer. Um, okay. You've got this really pronounced stone fruit acidity that runs all the way through. Um, and then this little kiss of sweet oak on the finish. So I'm seriously really like the moment I opened it, really getting that hint of an old fashioned of the bourbon. And it's 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 very like it's very amber in color. It's very, very pretty. Yeah, burgundy to purple to amber. It's super fun. <laughs> it is. Now, I, I don't know if this is a thing in cider, but for wine, you know, you have the legs going down the glass. Is that a thing for ciders or no? Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, so there's, depending on what you're making, uh, you can talk about the legs. Uh, you can talk about lacing if it's carbonated. Um, okay. That's less of a thing with cider because we have lower protein contents. So most of okay, gotcha. are Um But for beer producers, they're dealing with grain, which has a high protein content, which helps that foam stay up. Um, but typically we, we have that fall back down pretty fast. Okay. Gotcha. All right. I'm going, I, I smell the plums. I smell the bourbon. I smell the old fashioned. That's really good. <laughs> it's got that sour from the cider, but you know, like, I feel like every other cider, especially like mainstream ciders, it's like a punch in the face with like how sour it is. But this is like very chill. You get the plums. That's delicious, man. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> That's really good. Like, which uh, which ones are your favorites so far that you that you've made? Oh, man, it's super hard. Uh, so I mean, like I said, we make 
so many different ciders that it's really for me it's mood dependent like they're all so different like right now at the tasting room we're doing um a three cider flight and a six cider tasting flight nice Um, okay and they are literally all completely different like i one of my favorites right now is um it's called aurora um and it's essentially it's in if you've seen like the tall skinny bottles that you see like an ice cider um or a pomo in it looks like that but it's not it's a dry uh basically it's a crab apple sherry oh um, okay this really cool crab apple um we let the wild yeast do its thing. Um, and then we let it micro oxidize, um, just like a sherry. Um, and so it's kind of like a Fino or a Palo Cortado style Spanish, uh, dry sipping sherry. It's got these really amazing, like dried fig and dried apple and like a little bit of a leathery bittersweetness. And, um, it's super, super fun. (laughs) I bet that's super delicious. Um, before I forget, I wanted to ask, I should I should have asked this earlier. When you're going and you're picking fruit from all these orchards and all this stuff, like what are you, are you looking for organic? Do you really care about that stuff? Like when it comes to, you know, all the different types of apples and apple production, like what are you looking for specifically when it comes to what you're going to use for your ciders? So my goal um, when I'm making the cider is low intervention. And then what I look for in terms of the producer um, is as low intervention as possible there as well. Mm. Um, So a lot of the orchards that we harvest, uh, we like to tell people they're like beyond organic. Like some of these properties will never be certified organic because it's 12 trees that were planted in 1880. The family doesn't even live there anymore. They live like three states away. It's just in the family. We managed to get a hold of them and they're like, yeah, go for it. Knock yourself out. (laughs) And like write us a check for whatever you pick. Um, And so like, they're never going to go through a multi-year certification process. They just leave it alone. It's grown with zero intervention. Um, Like it's spray free, it's irrigation free, it's nitrogen amendment free, nobody's disking, like nobody's even pruning the trees. (laughs) Nobody's walked on the property in 50 years. Um, And that is what I get really excited about because that's the lowest possible intervention. Um, and that fruit starts to become incredibly interesting because of that. Uh, most of the orchard that we've planted, um, so we've got about two and a half acres that I've planted here on our property. Um, and that is really the direction that we're going with that. Um, so we put in full-sized trees, um, either semi-standard uh, or seedling rootstock. So these are going to be big, well-established trees. And that's really to replicate a lot of these older properties. Yeah. Um, most of the commercial fruit that gets grown right now is on dwarf uh, rootstock. They're really small trees. They can't support themselves. They need to be trellised. Um, it's basically like a giant vineyard style of production for apples. Um, they're tied like on multiple wires to hold them up. You need a lot of water and a lot of nitrogen to support them because the tree is only putting roots into like the top 18 inches of soil. Oh, okay. Um, and it's a, it's just a really churn and burn style of production because it's it's designed to meet the grocery demand. So they're looking for tonnage per acre of fruit that's grocery grade. Um, and so they're really just looking for maximum output, um, regardless of what that does to the soil, what kind of spraying is required, all of that. Um, and so what we find that is abandoned up in the hills um, is a much more sustainable style of production. It's lower yields in a lot of ways, um, especially time to yields. Like a lot of these rootstocks that we planted, um, you know, a dwarf orchard, you'll start to see a crop and start making money three years in. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. 
a lot of what we're planting is like seven to 10 years um, before you get a crop, let alone like peak production is probably like 60 years in. Um, that is, that is wild. 60 yeah. years till peak production yeah. probably. I mean, that's, and that's part of where the name of the business comes from. Like yeah. posterity cider works. Like my kids are going to be beyond middle age by the time, some <laughs> of the, especially some of the pears that we put in. Um, pears are notorious for taking a really long time to bear and grow. Um, we've got a fruit called a sorbus, a sorbus domestica. It's known okay. as a sorbus tree. Um, and that one uh, routinely is like 20 to 50 years before it will fruit. Um, but it'll live for 400 years. <laughs> and 400? so it's really, wow. okay. it's really with that longer term in mind that we're going because the other side of it is like, okay, we're not getting peak production for a really long time, but these are trees that a dwarf orchard is going to die 15 years in and it's mm. fine. Because like, okay, you were growing Honeycrisp, Honeycrisp market price went down. You can rip that orchard out, you know, 10 years later and put in Cosmic Crisp. And Cosmic Crisp drops in price. You can rip that orchard out and put in the next trendy patented variety. It's fine. You can chase that grocery market. Um, and so what we are growing is stuff that's going to live for 150, 200 years without issue. Um, and ideally be low intervention the whole time. Um, and so right now we're, we're watering these trees in. We do amend the soil with, um, we have what's known as a silvopasture system. So we have livestock that run through the orchard hmm, and okay. fertilize it. Um, and so we're building organic carbon in order to retain moisture and nutrients. Uh, but the goal is really to create a system that will need minimal intervention going forward after a certain point. Um, so we can make... A, the fruit that I want to be producing with that really interesting character, um, and then B, have a system that's lower intensity to maintain as well. Uh, because again, a lot of these more commercial style orchard, like, okay, they're putting in 2000 trees on an acre and I'm putting in 90. Um, and so like, you can imagine how much cost is there, how much aquifer depletion is involved in supporting something like that. Um, and it's just a fundamentally unsustainable way of, to produce in most of the country. Uh, and even the places where you can get away with that for a few generations, like you're going to start to exhaust that soil. Like it's going to happen. Um, and so the goal is really to replicate for us a lot of these old homestead orchards where it's, you know, these are trees that are even 40 feet between trees as the spacing and now we go out there and it's the biggest apple tree you've ever seen. It's like 40 feet tall. Oh, you, wow. couldn't, you couldn't even wrap your arms around it. It's so large at the base. Like I'm not even going to be able to pick all that fruit. You'd need a cherry picker to get up there. <laughs> and it's on a Sierra hillside. So it's just not going to happen. Um, but we find these trees and like, yeah, nobody's tended them in three generations. And that's why they're still there is because they're massive. They've gone down, they find their own nutrients, they find their own water, um, and they reach this sustainable homeostasis with their environment. Um, and now they're still cropping, you know, 140 years in. Yeah, it's wild what happens when we just let nature do its thing. And I mean, like like you're saying, I think what you said is phenomenal. Like you're, they're really beyond organic because there's like you, you're not worried about organic or anything because you're just letting like literally just letting nature do its thing. And like, it isn't going to be certified organic because you're not going through all those steps and everything, but it's so much more than that. It's really beyond organic, which is really neat. I think that's awesome. That's a really good perspective on it.
It's super fun. And then we do get some uh, commercial fruit from commercial orchards. And typically those are um, certified organic or spray free or some permutation thereof. Um, because again, my goal is the best quality fruit that I can get my hands on. Lower input, better taste, probably. Is that probably what you've discovered? Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is this is a known phenomenon as well. Like you go to the grocery store, you bite into an apple and it's like super, super juicy and really low flavor because it's just it's water heavy. Like they irrigated the heck out of it a couple weeks before harvest to drive up the moisture content, to increase the tonnage uh, so that they could get paid more. But the fruit is like super boring. Uh, we've all, again, we've all had that experience of just like, it's a whatever apple. And then you take that apple and you grow it in your backyard even. And it's like, oh, this is awesome. This is so much better. Um, and part of that is that you can actually pick it at the ideal time. It's not going to go into cold storage for six months. Um, so you can pick it at a better time for the fruit quality. But also like just by growing it in your backyard and not trying to optimize for pure production numbers, like you're getting a better product. Um, you're getting a better experience. Um, and then on top of that, when you get out to some of this mm. stuff that we find, it's like, it's got a century in the ground. It's changed its flavors, the mineral profile that it's expressing. Uh, and then it goes even further than that. Um, and so, yeah, like we really want to start from that, that ideal quality of fruit. Um, and some of it, again, just to be really clear, some of it is ideal for making cider, but it is not what we would necessarily consider tasty, uh, out of the hand. Um, it's, um, it's really intense in some cases, uh, making cider, uh, is really similar to making wine in that, like, I'm looking for fruit that has tannins and acid levels and aromatics at an intensity level that might be pretty unpalatable fresh. Like you're not going to go out in a vineyard and just throw down handfuls of Pinot Noir and big, big grapes like that. Um, because it's too intense. It's too intense to enjoy, uh, that way. Um, but just like no vintner is going to head over to the grocery aisle and pick up a bunch of seedless grapes from the grocery store because it doesn't have the right character. One of the funny things about a lot of these old orchards is like, you know, we'll ask if we can go out there to harvest it and people will be like, oh, I mean, knock yourself out. That fruit is gross. Um, because in their head, they're comparing it to that grocery fruit of like what what varieties, like the three varieties, that four varieties that I find at the grocery store, they taste this way. And then that apple is weird. It doesn't taste like that. It's super bitter, like nobody wants that. And that's actually what I'm looking for because it has those uh, those tannin levels, the aromatics, uh, the acidity, it's, it's all much more intense. Um, and that's really what we look for. I really want to do cider making one day. I, I, tried, um, I tried brewing my own beer. That was an experience. My wife got me like the, the, everything to to brew it, and it tasted awful. It tasted like a hoppy vodka. Oh, so I need to do it again. But but we'll see. I mean, it's cool though. I've seen so many people online, like on TikTok and Instagram, that are making their own mead, making their own cider. So it seems like there might be like a a renaissance of like you know cider here in the U.S. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, and honestly, it's we're doing that. Like cider is really where craft beer was maybe twenty twenty five years ago. Um, in terms of uh, like the way the market is emerging, there's a lot of different styles of production. There's people doing mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff from like people who start out the gate and they're like, okay, we're a brand new cidery. We're making a hundred thousand gallons a year. And then there's people who are doing like super weird granular, crazy stuff like us, where it's like, we're going to make what we can and see where we go from there. Um, and it's just kind of like a wild west, like uh, the, the beer industry used to be um, in the early, early days.
Yeah, and you think about where, where beer is right now. I mean, there's so many craft breweries around the country. Like, hopefully there'll be so many more like craft cider works in the next couple of years. So you guys are kind of on the trend. You kind of beat everybody the trend it looks like, which is awesome. <laughs> That's certainly the hope. Um, but yeah, you know, these things go in cycles. Like the, the craft beer industry has had probably two or three expansion contraction cycles since the 90s. Um, the cider industry is absolutely going to do that too. And there's trends, there's people bucking trends. It's just really fun. That's awesome. Well, Brendan, I'm so excited to chat with you. Love the old plums wine or, or the, the cider. Love it. Super good. Going to try the other one with Chris, the O'Shandy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this will be super cool. We'll link everything below, but it was great to, to chat with you, my friend. Awesome. Yeah, it was really fun. Let me go grab Chris. Um, well, Chris, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, we talked to your husband earlier. We're going to talk to you about the business side of Posterity Cider Works. Um, you guys have been enjoying it. You're an awesome small batch cider that's making some, obviously, as I can attest, some delicious cider. Yeah, we have a really good time. I think Brendan and I are different sides of the same coin in some ways. So Brendan does a lot of the uh, science and the manual components of our business. And then I do a lot of the like strategy and then also marketing sales type things. So it's really nice to have two people that like are united in our brand and our ideas mm. what we want. And then also like have very different brains for how to like achieve those goals together. So it's been, it's been really good. You guys are in California. Um, you're shipping cider all over the country. Like, how did you, what was the whole process of that? Like, like, did you start with a little farm store and then sell locally and then ship across the country? Like, what was the whole process like? Yeah. So uh, I think that our journey has been atypical in the sense that from the get go, we understood that we had an audience that was outside of California. Mm. Um, my husband had been documenting the process of starting the orchard on our farm and getting all of kind of the regulations going on Twitter. And so we had gathered a lot of people who are really excited about our brand and wanted to try it. So I knew from the beginning that that had to be part of our business plan to allow people that had been like rooting us on for two, two years and some change to be able to actually try mm -hmm. the stuff that they <laughs> were hoping to get their hands on. And um, at the beginning, so we opened in April of a, a year ago. And uh, in the beginning, we thought, okay, like, you know, uh, we've got all these regulations we need to jump through. Let's just like try and like, get this done, power it out, get all of the compliance taken care of so we can ship it everywhere. And we found out that we had actually made like a massive critical error in our understanding of how compliance works. Uh -oh. so, yeah. So Cider is really fascinating because it's actually governed by two different federal agencies, depending on the alcohol percentage in the cider. So a lot of the stuff you buy at the grocery store, it's under 7%. And that's what most people have been exposed to, right? It's in like a 22 ounce bottle or a 12 ounce bottle and uh, looks more like a beer than it does like champagne or wine. Mm -hmm. And so we thought like, oh, you could use whatever. You could use a champagne bottle. You could use a beer bottle. Um, and we didn't realize that some of the stuff that we had made was over 7%, which is uh, governed by the TTB. And they have specific size bottles you can use if you're going to ship outside of your state. So our first batches of cider, we hoped that we could ship them everywhere. And then we realized we couldn't ship them because the governing agency wouldn't approve us to ship them out of California. So the first month I had ciders that were only for sale in California. And then after that, we got our game together. There you go. <laughs> Size bottles, 
got through all the compliance with this other federal agency. And then we were able to ship stuff that was uh, over to almost every state in the U.S. There's like a few of them that have weird rules, like New Jersey's weird. Um, but for the most part, we can we can ship almost anywhere now. So it sounds like trial by error. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so <laughs> many there's so many rules. And like there's also I think there's a lot of people that are a bit pirate and like don't really follow the mm-hmm. rules, and, like just yeah. slide under the radar because they're small. And we were thinking everybody's playing by the rules and everybody's, you know, going by all the, you know, the things you're supposed to do, the things you're supposed to say, how big the print is supposed to be. And so we were using like anecdotal example as like our guide rails <laughs> and in real life, like the government's like, um, no, you can't do it like that. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, so yeah, learning, lots of learning the first year for sure. We've, um, we've released about 36 different varieties of cider in the year and some change that we've been open now. So I'm well-versed in what you can and cannot do, (laughs) but I I can imagine. And that's wild. 36 different types of cider in, in a a little bit over a year. I mean, I feel like a lot of companies would struggle at having that diversity, but like we were talking with Brandon, like you guys have, you guys are at such a, a great small scale where you can really experiment and make some really good, really interesting ciders that, would be difficult if you were like super huge. So you yeah. guys are like at a perfect section in the market, it seems like. Yeah, I I think one of the magic things about it is that we don't dilute our stuff for volume. So mm-hmm. if we go out and it's a single tree that we pick from and that batch only turns out to be 35 bottles, like we're going to leave it at 35 bottles. We're not going to grab some juice from another orchard and put it in there if it doesn't really benefit the cider itself. And that gives... Um, that gives us the opportunity to really highlight some terroir that like isn't available if you're buying juice from let's say like Washington or Oregon and then you're like making it in your cidery that's in California or some other state. Um, there, there's some really unique things about where we live and we get to highlight that with what we're doing because we can be so narrow because we're not looking to have a grocery store pick it up or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And kind of going along those lines, like as you guys are developing these flavors and all these different ciders, like how important is it to develop like a narrative around those different like tastes and the different ciders to where you can like really give consumers like a really good idea of what the flavor is about what the backstory is? Because I I mean, I'm sure selling online, like the story is almost just as important as the product. Yeah, I think that we're so passionate about what we're doing and like where things come from that the stories write themselves pretty easily. Mm. Uh, Usually our process is Brennan and I experience the creation of the cider together. So, um, you know, various parts of it, we both touch um, literally with our hands, like processing parts of it and bottling it. (laughs) And, um, and then when we, uh, when we go to write the label, usually I'll take like the first stab at like the overarching story that we're trying to tell and like the the sense of place, the experience that we had during the time of, of creating it. And then he goes back through and adds kind of his own viewpoint. So it's they, they filter through both of us, which which uh, usually makes them better, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Two minds. Two minds are better than one. Right, right. right. And he he's um he he's like I don't know if you guys talked about books at all but like Brennan loves to read and so he's got like a very like um 
large vocabulary of words to pick from and like ways of phrasing sentences. And so he usually makes it a little more colorful than maybe the way <laughs> I wrote it the first time. But yeah, we're a good, we're a good pair in that. So the the stories to us, like they kind of write themselves. Like we mm-hmm. we don't struggle that often on what to write. And then um we've also been really lucky that we've been able to do a couple of times like online on our social media accounts, been able to say like Hey, like we can't think of a name for this one. You know, we're 35 in. We're like, what do we call this? <laughs> we call this cider. And and the community is like so excited to like help us name it that like we've actually had like very good contending names to pick from that have generated stories as well of like, oh, this is like a beautiful story about, you know, the folklore of apples that I had never heard, but somebody yeah. from a different culture or from a different, you know, set of readings knows about it and now we get to share that with everyone so that's really cool that's cool that's that's good you have that community out there that's like willing to help you guys with that because that's that makes it so much more unique and i feel like they feel like they're invested in it they're like oh i can help name this product like you can't do that with like another big time like cider maker like this is so cool this is why you should support them right yeah yeah no it's been really fun and like we we have a like a very interesting offline community too and like they're totally not intertwined so like really okay like the people who we go out in our community and like pick apples from, we have like a phone call relationship with, right? And most of them are not actually on social media. Like a lot of them are like older um, that they've had their property for like multiple generations. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like we call them, we're like, hey, Frank, like, how you doing? Like, how's the apples up there? And like, you know, about you know just how the property is and all the other stuff they're doing and then and then like they don't see any of the what happens with like the fanaticism online of people like sharing pictures of their bottles when they get them and stuff like they they don't see any of that they're like in different two universes that never meet yeah it's it's the best of both worlds you've got a big online community and big offline community that's awesome which i feel like is a huge win-win and speaking of well really i guess both communities you guys also have a cider club is that right yeah, yeah. So we have a cider club. It's three uh, shipments a year for, uh, for three bottles each one. So you're basically signing up for nine bottles for the full year mm. in the spring. And then we take a break over summer because it's too hot to ship most places. We want to keep the cider, um, going to keep all the like delicate flavors in the cider contained. And when cider gets hot, sometimes it loses some of that uh, really special stuff out of it. Mm, and, okay. then, and then we have in the fall, a shipment um, that happens like right around August, September, and then right before Thanksgiving that we do. So you have bottles for your holiday table as well. So when it comes to shipping, I was super impressed with the packaging that you guys got this in, that, that you sent it in. Yeah. I feel like I could have drop kicked the box <laughs> like, like off of a three-story building and it would have been secure. I mean, it was like a vault. I mean, so like what all went into figuring out what sort of shipping works and what's going to be the safest for the bottles yeah so believe it or not things still break in those (laughs) so the box has just for people who've never received our cider the box has uh, a really thick like corrugated box and then there is these inserts inside that uh were kind of overwhelming the first time i put one together because they've got all these like flaps that you push in and fold Mm -hmm. to kind of keep the bottles (laughs) almost levitating in the middle of the box so that they don't get, you know, if they do get drop kicked that, <laughs> but yeah, we sent, um, we sent a case of cider. So like 12 bottles, this guy who is his like holiday home is in Tennessee and he was, he wanted some bottles for Christmas. And that same week they had some kind of cold snap 
and the bottles broke inside and we don't know oh if it dropped. We don't know if it froze and like they just exploded. Like we have no idea, but you know, that's like the nice thing about the company we used to ship is that they reimburse us when stuff breaks. So hmm. it's not actually like we didn't lose, you know, $200 in cider. We, 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 reimbursed for the stuff that was lost and then paid for what we sent, you know, and, and as the replacement. So that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that, that's good. Cause you hear all the time of whether like whatever you're shipping, like whether it's, you know, beef or wine, like a lot of people having to eat that cost. And yeah. of course they send it again to the consumer, which yeah. hopefully fingers crossed they get it the second time, but yeah. sometimes it just doesn't happen. I, I ordered beef one time online and it was like maybe two and a half years ago. And there was this like really weird, cold snap in like texas yeah it was when that blizzard hit texas and like they were out of power for like a week yes um my meat had gotten stuck there and it was supposed to be two-day shipping and it wound up being a week and when i got the steak it was warm i was like uh and i called them and they're like oh yeah we'll send you a new one so yeah sometimes you just never know a shipping so right no you don't you you, you like bless and release them into the world <laughs> yeah you're like please get there on time please be there in one in one piece and not you know broken but yeah yeah, these were legit like very well done very packaged and i felt like they weren't going anywhere like honestly it took me a couple of minutes to get them out of there but it worked out very well yeah Yeah, i'm always worried that they're gonna the packaging is somehow like someone's gonna open it and it's gonna like slide through or something right because it feels so secure but yeah far it's been good we haven't had that so i'm not gonna let that well that's good (laughs) <laughs> well, that's good. So you guys also have, y'all have tours at the Cider? So uh, yeah, Brennan does uh, tours at uh, 12 o'clock uh, every day that we're open. And he walks through the manufacturing space and talks about why we do what we do, um, the process, where we get some of the apples from, and then uh, walks people into our tasting room, which kind of just has a double door to it. And, mm-hmm. um, and then he pours the ciders one by one. Uh, and tells the story of the cider. So a lot of places when you go go there, you would be like, okay, I want a flight. And they pour you six glasses and hand it to you and say, see you later. But it's totally different. Like we pour it one at a time. Um, and he really talks through all of the elements of the cider because he wants people to understand like that this is this is a an elevated experience. This is not yeah. a slam it back. Like it's something that you're supposed to enjoy and and we want to cultivate conversations and community as part of that. And we found that like having stories to share is the most important part of like taking away something from an experience, right? Like mm-hmm. if, you go, if you go wine tasting, you're like, oh, I had some good wine, but that's it. There's like nothing to, to talk about. But if you know the story of like how we got those grapefruits that are in the O'Shandy or where the plums came from and the many plums of McCullough Hill, like that gives you another layer of like shared experience and community that you can carry forward. And I think that's really important. Yeah. See, I love that aspect of like, of, of like drinks, like wine or cocktails or beer, like getting the story of it, like how they're unique, the unique ingredients, the unique stories of the people that made them like, that's what I really love. And so I love that you're kind of driving that home. Like, Hey, it's all about the stories. It's not just about the cider. It's about the story of us, the ingredients on the cider and how it all came to be. So I love that. That's really cool. Yeah. Like, I mean, dollars and cents, if we're, if we were a business that was just interested in making money, we would not be out picking single trees in the sticks that takes two hours to drive to. That's that's not, it's not economic. It's truly passion that drives that. It's, you know, like, and, and 
no one else is going to have that because it doesn't make sense when you have investors to be like, oh yeah, we're going to spend two days processing these apples. <laughs> it's going to generate $200 in revenue or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Hold up. Wait, what? Those aren't good margins. <laughs> like, no, no, we just really like this tree. It's got incredible blossoms. I don't know. We just, we love it. Yeah, that's awesome. So you guys done that. You're you're shipping um, ciders all across the country. What's the next couple of years looking like for you guys? I mean, you planted some orchards or some some trees. So like, what's the next like five years maybe looking like? Yeah, I think that that is for us the most exciting thing to talk about, actually. So thank you for asking that. Yeah, sure. Well, our orchard um, was planted when I was pregnant with our first son. We dug the first 40 holes by hand. And, uh, so the, the trees are as old as our kids are basically We have two sons. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. So yeah, I was very, very pregnant. And I was like, this is very foolish what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> because we planted standard sized trees, it takes longer for them to bear fruit because they're mostly focused on growing up and down into the earth, you know, having really strong mm. foundation. Um, before they start actually bearing. And so in the next five years, those trees will start to to make a real crop that we will be able to make an estate blend from our farm. So really excited about that. It's mm-hmm. a lot of labor to love trees when you're two people on a farm. I bet it is. Yeah. We're a little behind schedule this year, but um, we, you know, we spend when you plant it, we're spending like two hours planting a single tree just because of the way that we protect each tree and the different things Mm -hmm. that we do to make sure the deer don't get it and the voles don't get it and the rabbits don't get it and the insects don't get it, you know, um, because we're, we're investing this tree being here for a much longer than say like a dwarf tree that you'd be like, "Eh, 10 years, 15 years, we're going to rip this out anyway, like just plant them and get them done. Um, So that part of our business we're really excited about because it will be like the first time that we can really show that our unique climate is driving a different type of flavor in these apples than let's Mm -hmm. say a coastal climate where apples usually thrive or uh, in like, you know, Washington where there's much more rainfall year round Uh, because we're so dry and so hot. The sugar content in our apples is like off the charts higher, which drives Mm -hmm. just a different type of flavor profile and a different alcohol level than, you know, a grab and steam apple that you would get from Oregon or Washington, let's say. So that's very exciting because we'll be able to really show off that the the climate here does impact the fruit and does impact the cider. And then from a business standpoint of, well, where are we going to grow to? I think uh, we've, our distribution primarily um, in retailers right now is in California. We have one retailer in Washington, and I think we're going to scale further into the fine dining industry. We've been uh, courting a lot of Michelin star, James Beard type. Oh, okay. We're in three currently. Um, so, uh, we're, we're kind of working that angle of like, we want to be, we want to, we want to be one of the ciders that proves that cider belongs on a fancy wine list, basically Mm, like not wine. Um, but we're elevated in a way that can be considered a pairing for fine dining where traditionally a lot of cider has been considered like a tailgate cocktail. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm Not, it's not the first thing you think of when you're like, oh, we're going to go and have, you know, like a very formal dining experience. You're not like, I can't wait to try the cider, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. You, you think of like the Red's Apple Ale, like that's that sort of cider, not this like very, very nice, very thoughtful cider. Yeah, yeah. And so, so yeah, so we have um, we have some partnerships there that are just really wonderful. Um, 
the, the conversations about flavor are different with, with a chef or a psalm who's really thinking about how food mm. and alcohol go together. And like, they also, a lot of this, the chefs and psalms think about other ways that cider can be used other than just pouring it in a glass, right? So mm-hmm. maybe like a foam or a reduction with it. There's a lot of other options of how they, they can utilize things that we're doing. Um, so I think we'll, we'll build into that a little bit more. And then also just further distribution into Washington and Oregon is probably where we're going to build out for the next few years. Um, and then who knows, uh, it, you know, it's like, it's all, it's all a game of balance, right? Of like, what do you, what do you truly want in life? Like, do you want to be strapped to your business and working 80 hours a week trying to meet the quantity you need to, you know, create during harvest? Or is there a balance of like work life where you're like, I'm only going to work this much, mm. I'm going to make this much. And like, I'm going to be contented by like knowing that like, that's the budget I live within. Right. That's my, my lifestyle is going to just fit um, with how much money you can like, you know, make out of doing X amount of cider. Yeah, that's a tricky spot to be in. Like you want your business to grow, but do you want it to get to a point where, you know, you're not going to have a work-life balance anymore, but you're going to have more money, but you're going to have to work a lot more. But then also, like, I feel like there's also a tipping point. Like at what's at what scale are you no longer like a small scale um, cider maker where you can have like the quality over the quantity, you know? Right. Like I'm sure it's a fine balance. You've got to kind of balance there, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And like the first, the first year we started with 40 gallon barrels uh, or 40, 40 gallons, which is one barrel mm-hmm. so we started with that. And we we're like, these are huge batches. And now that is a small batch for us. We're, we're looking at things that are, you know, three and a half barrels as a standard size, if not bigger for every yeah. batch, because, or at least the batches that we release to everyone, like our cider club and our charter club they get smaller stuff that they get offered to them but like anything that we're going to release you know that it has to be more than like 200 bottles or else we sell out of it in a weekend and then i'm like i don't have it anymore (laughs) (laughs) it's disappointing to people like you know not everyone is like gonna you know log on and like buy cider right when i launch it you know yeah uh just trying to like manage that part of it and keep the quality where we want that to be is really important and then the other part of it is that, you know, we named this bill, this business Posterity Cider Works, one, because the orchard is going to outlast us. The type of trees that we planted, they're going to outlive us. But also we want to be able to like give this business to our children if they want it. And that takes a lot of strategic planning with finances, mm. how you grow, because we're not taking investor money. Like that to me, like once we take money from somebody else, we've lost control of the business and we've lost control of the scale we have to grow at. And then we're just, we might as well just have tech jobs again. You know what I mean? Like we're working for somebody else in a lot of ways. So, um, the way that we grow is like very intentional. Um, and we have to be like very specific with each other of like, does this feel like something that would be manageable for our children if they wanted to take it on too? Right. It's a different business model. I don't think yeah. most, people, most people are like, take the money, take the money, take the money, <laughs> not my risk. And we're like, put the risk on us, plant the trees. Like, you know, the whole thing is, is really on our backs and like, the the hope is that it pays off but you never know oh, right? you never yeah know. absolutely but i mean you guys are also being like like super super intentional as opposed to other people that like you know they just want to grow it and they want money but you guys like it, it seems like you have more that you want from that like you just don't want it to grow and you know to get all the money but right. you want it to be 
like obviously make a big difference difference in the cider industry, but also like have an option for your kids if your kids want it down the road. So that's that's awesome. I mean, that's a really cool perspective. Yeah, I think you know because we both worked in tech, we saw a lot of companies that would yeah. grow until burst, right? And then they would either sell or they would get another round of funding, and you'd have a longer runway and like that type of consumption of money and uh, utilization of people as like just things that can build really fast and then be usable. Like that just didn't feel good to us as employees, right? Like we experienced layoffs and things like that so many times that like, and I think just like built into us is like, build this with stability, like be honest with people. Like if we need to have less hours, like be honest with them about it because we want to build something that's like, long lasting instead of just like burn the candle at both ends as fast as possible and then yeah. take else's money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there are a ton of fortune 500 CEOs that could learn a thing or two from you guys. I mean, that's, that's awesome. That intentionality and like, you know, we don't need to grow super, super fast. Like let's just be strategic. Like yeah. George Bush would say strategery. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we need. That's what we need. Strategery. <laughs> All right. So we've got this old shandy. Yes. Um, sparkling grapefruit cider. Yes. Um, I'm going to open it. it it's, it's a little bit easier to open than the old plums. So while I'm opening it, do you want to give us like the spiel of the O'Shandy? Yeah. So O'Shandy uh, started with one of our finished ciders and we uh, managed to just out of the blue when we were not thinking there'd be any more fruits. We had a neighbor <laughs> who came by and was like, do you want some grapefruits? My tree is bursting with fruit. And, oh. and this, 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 the interesting thing is that this year uh, that it was made in, there was no apples. We had a really late frost and it just burnt all the little baby apples to a crisp and they fell off the tree. So like local fruit was like hard to come by, but this grapefruit had a great life. I don't know. It was, it was having its moment. It was <laughs> 2022 was its moment. So they were like, come get all these. So we had a hundred pounds of ruby red grapefruit from a neighbor, like literally like stones throw away. Um, So we processed the the finished cider in a second round of fermentation with the grapefruit. And then after that, we added from another neighbor, some Meyer lemon. And oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, it's got layers on layers. Um, What I love about O'Shandy is that it's really citrus up front, but then it also has this like, almost reminiscent of the seaside feeling to it. To me, it reminds me, I'm from Santa Cruz. I grew up by the ocean my whole life. Okay. And it gives me just this little bit of like ocean minerals at the end. So I'll let you try it. And that sounds, just look at all these bubbles coming up. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a happy one. It does smell very, very good. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was telling Brandon earlier, um, that one, and you had mentioned it earlier. Oh, there we go. I got it on the microphone. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I talked to him earlier that um, when I opened up the old plums, like it hit me in the face like an old fashioned. It smelled just like an old fashioned. I was yes. like, man. Yeah. Okay. I smell the grapefruit. <laughs> I smell the lemon. Oh, and, I, and also I told Brendan, um, my wife and I went to Napa for her 30th birthday last year. Oh, and so we, we have the whole thing down, like how to smell it. Yeah, you got you to twirl it. You got to see the legs. Do you do you uh, pull it through your teeth too? <laughs> I I think they might have taught us that. I don't remember that part, but <laughs> I, but also we I thought for sure we would see it a lot. We didn't see a spit bucket at all. We had yeah. heard that that's like huge, but didn't see know. a single one. So so, they, so they're like they usually put them under the counter now. I think that like wines uh, are in like 
nice enough that we're like, we're all gentlemen here. We don't. <laughs> we're we're going to drink it and enjoy it. Yeah. The when we started doing tasting flights, I I like expected that. Oh but really? I bet it's like, like I do not want to see that at all. <laughs> okay, that's super good. I love the bubbly. <laughs> Obviously, I get the grapefruit, the lemon. I'm kind of getting this, the the seaside at the end a little bit. It's very faint. It's not okay. salty, but I'm getting it. Yeah, it's just like a little pinch of saltiness. Yeah. I wish that podcasts had like smell a vision or taste a vision or something. <laughs> Open sample two A. Open sample. <laughs> get your get your iPhone and scratch the logo really quickly. It's a scratch and sniff episode, and you can smell the wine. So yeah, so that one came to us as like a total gift from our neighbors. But like the neighbors know that we're weirdos that collect foraged fruit. And yeah. Like, Do you want these? The You're like, uh, yes, please. You're like, oh, Shandy. Yes, please. We would like that. <laughs> yeah. So a Shandy, it's it's a little tongue in cheek, the name. So one, uh, Shandy is usually what you uh, make with like really garbage cider. So mm, okay. usually like a bar will serve Shandy and it's basically like, bottom tier cider with like yeah. lemon put in it to save it from itself but we made like really fancy cider <laughs> it's fancy shandy it's fancy shandy and we and that's kind of a theme with us is that we like to make stuff that normally is like the cheap stuff but we make it in a way that's really elevated and uses like okay unique, uh to to give you like what if what if we reimagined this drink and actually like made it into something that was quite quite uh exceptional instead of like saving it from itself you know? yeah so. see i mean like we were talking about earlier this drink is delicious but also that story that you're saying is so unique and so interesting <laughs> that it makes this product awesome and it's just so unique i love it that's awesome it's just what happened <laughs> like, i mean know. you it never was... know it's gonna happen like you, you get awesome neighbors like that they give you some 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 fruit and you make a great cider out of it yeah. that's really? a win-win those are good neighbors they are. They're really good neighbors. And they have lots of their own stories, too, that we share in the tasting room with people that can't fit on the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> There's a, we are releasing our second round of elderberry cider mm. coming up probably in the next month or two it will be released. And the elderberry cider is uh, like, it's got a whole spiel, but I'll give it to you short. Uh, the guy who forges the elderberries is from a famous family in Tuolumne County that mm. has their own apple ranch. They are uh, Mennonites. And so uh, very conservative. All the women wear bonnets and they have um, like a kid's apple ranch where you like can go pet animals and like get a sandwich, oh, cool. piece of apple pie. Anyway, one of their sons, which they have a huge, huge family, right? Uh, one of their sons is probably about high school age now, uh, mm -hmm. college. And he uh, has decided that he's going to start his own little business forging these elderberries. Elderberries are pain in the butt to harvest because they're these <laughs> berries. And he goes out in the heat of the summer and like is picking all of these and then sells them. And so the, so his mom posted on Facebook, if anybody wanted to buy some elderberries and I, the first year I was like, sure, why not? So we, so we buy these elderberries from him. He comes on a dirt bike to meet me in the parking lot of this apple ranch to sell <laughs> me hundreds of pounds of elderberries that he's carried on the back of his dirt bike. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> awesome. His name's Jethro and he has a big 4-H buckle that he wears 
for like something he won on the county fair. And he's just the sweetest kid in the world. Like he's so sweet, but he's, you know, he's like 17 maybe now. Yeah. Uh, but he sells, now he sells his elderberries to like the natural food market near us and stuff. And so when we tell this story at first, people were like, how strange and interesting. And now everyone is like, that's Jethro, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's Jethro. Jethro is now a legend. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's lots of funny stories about the local flavor (laughs) and where we get things. (laughs) That's awesome. They're very memorable. And I bet that they increase return customers every time they hear these stories and visitors. I mean, I hope they have a good time. <laughs> oh, I, I bet I bet they do. That's hilarious. That's so cool. Um, well, Chris, this has been so cool to chat with you and Brendan and learn about Posterity Cider Works. We're going to link everything below in the description, but where else can people follow you? Obviously, if they're in California, where can they come and visit and tour the cidery and, of course, try yeah. some of your awesome ciders? Yeah, so uh, our tasting room is in McCullamy Hill, which in the, is in the Sierra Foothills. We're about 90 minutes from Sacramento um, on your way to Yosemite. And uh, you can also try us at a, a several bottle shops that are in the Bay Area, um, as well as some uh, fine dining restaurants. There's more details about where those are on our website, which is PosterityCiderWorks.com. And then on social, we're either Posterity Cider or Posterity Cider Works, depending on it. Uh, we're on pretty much everything, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we're messing around with t- TikTok, but like... Nice. I don't know if we're cool enough for TikTok. It's a list <laughs> of itself that I'm not sure I under, fully understand. But we're there. We're doing something. <laughs> there you go. You, you've got the username there. So you've got it unlocked. There you go. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, Chris, thanks so much. It was great talking with you. And it was great tasting the wine. It was super oh. fun. So thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Be sure to check out Posterity at the links below. And check out our YouTube, check out our Facebook, and of course, check out our 5-Minute Friday newsletter at the links below, where we send out one newsletter every Friday with all things farm travel, with all things farm traveler, agriculture, and some cool little updates. And of course, you have access to our Farm Finder page, which if you're on Facebook, you might know that we are getting very close to launching a new Facebook group focused on Farm Finder. So all that is in the link below in the description. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment.